Lord, we pray that you would speak through this powerful word today. God, we are so grateful for your word. You promise that it will not return void. You tell us that it is sharper than any two-edged sword that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We pray right now, Lord, that we would submit to it. Lord, on this Lord's Day, it can be so easy to come into this worship service or to watch online and to miss this invitation from you. You invite us into worship. You invite us to learn from you. I pray right now, Lord, that each of us would, in the intent of our hearts, Unplug from all the distractions. Unplug from what is after this service. Unplug from, from all the whirlwind and the chaos that this world has produced in our lives and that right now, God, we would just be able to have a singular focus on hearing from you. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would illuminate these words, that they would fly off of this text and into our hearts, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts and in only the way that you can, God, that as we walk out today, that each of us would know that you spoke into us today. May we, right now, fall on our face and be overwhelmed by your great fire. Burn in our hearts, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So for the next few weeks, we are in this King's series, and this whole series is about choosing right, choosing to do right versus evil. This is a theme throughout King's. As you look at this, if you're a highlighter or a circle, circler or, or you know, an annotator in your Bibles, uh, I would encourage you as you're reading through King's, look for all the times that the author of King's is, is telling us about a certain character and whether they do right or whether they do evil. In particular with kings, we're going to find a whole bunch of kings that do evil. Like a lot. And every once in a while, there will be one that does right in the eyes of God. This is in the eyes of our God. This is the question that is being framed for us today as we step in to 1 Kings chapter 18. And really it's this question... For many of us, and I believe for the people of God, where it's not so much about who will you choose, but it's saying, who will you choose only? Elijah is calling the people of God to have all of their submission to him and him alone. This reminds me of something I learned from one of my little league coaches, Coach David. I think Coach David's here coaching our baseball team, baseball hitters. And he was teaching our kids, it's a little phrase called, don't step in the bucket. You guys heard of this? What it means is, is when you're batting, good stance, bent, your, bent legs, hands back, right? Telling your ears a secret. And oftentimes when you're batting in baseball, you need to have all of your power forward all of your power forward, and you need to have total focus on that ball. 
But it can be easy to lose the focus and start thinking as you're going forward, oh no, they're going to hit me with that baseball. And instead of going forward, you step in the bucket. And your back foot steps out and you lose all balance. And oftentimes in Little League, I feel especially when you first start and you're coaching kids, when you get kids doing this, it's failure, always. And I believe here, as Elijah is talking to the people, they're encountering this same exact feel, is they're sitting here getting ready, and, and, and instead of going forward with the Lord, they're choosing other ways. They're, they're stepping in the bucket. Their hearts are, are not completely devoted to the Lord. And this seems to be the theme in 1 Kings chapter 18. It starts off so great in 1 Kings. We learn of David, the man after God's own heart. He sets the throne that was promised. All of these promises of God, and in comes King Solomon. And for 10 chapters or so, we read that Solomon asks for wisdom, and the Lord gives him wisdom, and he says that he, will, he, he, he builds the, the beautiful temple of the Lord, and God inhabits this place, and there's all of this wonderful uh, prosperity and blessing. But we start to see some cracks and we start to see Solomon step in the bucket. We start to see, while he wants to follow the Lord completely and he wants to have the wisdom from heaven and he knows these things to be true, he finds himself influenced by the world around him. Look at what it says in 1 Kings chapter 11. This is the beginning of the end. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they live with you, for surely they will, look at, look at what he says, they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Well, obviously. My goodness, you can see the beginning of the end here. And from this point on in Kings, if you've been reading along, we start to see much more kings, one after another, that find themselves choosing to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord instead of what is right, because these outside influences, these foreign gods, causes them to step in the bucket. And it kind of culminates in this moment in chapter 16, verse 30, when we learn of, of King Ahab. You see, because of Solomon's sin, because of this the Lord, that at one time, all of Israel was united, all 12 tribes. But because of Solomon, the Lord says, I'm going to punish you and divide you. And, and Israel is divided at, in, at, in, in this story to 10 tribes and two tribes. And you're going to be, as you're watching it, you're going to see that there's now a kingdom of Judah and a kingdom of Israel. If you've been reading along, it's kind of confusing. It's like you're going back and forth between kingdoms. And in Israel, there's a king who rises up named Ahab. And we read in chapter 16, verse 30, it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, 
did evil, can you put that up on the screen, in the sight of the Lord. This is a theme we'll see. More than all who were before him. In other words, he was the worst king ever. I should say the worst king yet. It gets worse. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. This is setting the tone. The Lord is getting provoked. The people have divided hearts, and they're worshiping these evil gods, some of them that would demand even child sacrifice. And in this moment that we're reading, it's setting the tone, and in enters a man of God named Elijah. And Elijah enters in in chapter 17, and we see that he kind of is ready to, in essence, throw down with the prophets of Baal. You see, Baal was a god of fertility. He was one of the main gods that said that Jezebel, one of the evil queens married to Ahab, was influencing Ahab, and, and, and this god was about fertility for the, for the soil. He, he, he was supposed to have, you know, power over, over the weather, over, over the rain, over fire, over lightning. And so the, the Lord is provoked by Ahab's evil. And look at what happens here. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, Tishbe in Gilead says to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. In other words, you guys serve Baal? You say that he brings rain? I'm going to take the rain away. And you worship that false god, and let's see what happens. God's throwing down. And, and this is the context to chapter 18. The people have not had rain for three years. And rain is life. Rain is crops. Rain is everything to the people. They are in very dire straits in this moment. Not just the people, the king. So the question that is being asked of the people, of Ahab, and really I think of you and me as we read along, is who will answer? When you call upon God, when you pray to whoever it is that you believe is God, who will answer? Who will answer? And in this text, seems to me we learn some things about this question. And the first is, will it be the God of the hour or the God who answers by fire? Is it the God of the hour or the God who answers by fire? Look at verse 21 here. It says this. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In, in other words, if there, let's just see who answers. Whoever answers, let's follow them. Let's not just say like, like, like you follow kind of the God of the hour. 
And the people here are deeply influenced by this. They know that they, they're being pressured into following Baal. They're, they're, they're going with what the society, with what culture is telling them to follow, but they're not necessarily rejecting the Lord. They're still doing the ways of the Lord. They're still coming to the temple and doing that worship, but they're also following after Baal and Asheroth and whatever other gods of their culture are being raised up. In theology class, we learned about this. There's this definition, this word called syncretism. This idea here of the combination of different forms of belief or practice, or the fusion of two or more originally different inflectional forms. Meaning it's, it's, it's two exclusive ideas in trying to blend them together, and this is what the people are doing, and Elijah is saying, God doesn't want anything of that. He's saying he, he is either the one true God and follow him and serve him, or don't do that at all. He's saying, if Baal is God, fine, follow him. But if Yahweh is God, the God of the fire, the one who answers with the fire, follow him. And he's throwing down. And we read this and we think, oh yeah, this is, we, we, we can so easily remove ourselves and pretend like this doesn't apply to us, yet we all live in cultures and societies that are always telling us the same kind of message. I mean, I mean, think about the messages of today. You be you. What is true for you is true for you. Live your truth. That may be true for you in your faith, in your religion, and, and this is true for, for my faith and my religion. You know, we're, we're all going up a mountain to get to the end, and we all just kind of have our different path. Very similar. And here Elijah is throwing down and he's calling the people to gather and he calls Elijah to get his prophets, to get 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah and they all, nine, 850 versus one prophet. And they're all come together at Mount Carmel and it's kind of like this giant cosmic battle. And Mount Carmel, it's, it's really this place where I could just imagine thousands of people watching and witnessing this to wonder which God is going to answer. Who is the true God? And Elijah wants this to be very clear that there's no sort of manipulation. There's no, he wants everyone to leave knowing for sure who the real God is. And so he's even going to give them home court advantage. You see, Carmel was probably the place, the sacred grounds that people worshipped Baal. It was like their home court. He lets them go there. They're not going to go to Jerusalem. He lets them go to their space. And he even lets them go first. Look at what he says here. Look at what he says here in verses uh, 22 through 24. It says, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets, prophets are 450 men. Let two bull, bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves. They could even choose the better bull. And cut in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. This is key. key. 
says, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. God of the hour, the God of fire. And when we learn next, in the next interactions, a truth. As we call upon the Lord, there's really two postures here. There's one posture, uh, posture of performing for attention and another posture of prayer to a person. Look at what happens here. Verses 25 and following says this, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one, one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Probably in a frenzy of, of calling upon and crying out to their God. And they limped around the altar that they had made. I love the language here. It's like they've been working so hard. You ever, you ever been... Uh, I wouldn't know this, I'm not a dancer, but dancing so hard or running so hard that you literally are limping around because they're so exhausted. That, oh, Baal, answer us. But look at, look at what the writer's telling us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Elijah's quite the prophet. There's 450 of them. There's 850 of them. He's, not a, he's the dude that told them no rain for three years. He mocked them saying, listen to this. Look at the humor here. Look at the, the, the courage here. He's crying aloud for he is, he, saying cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing, he's, he's messing with you, or he is relieving himself. Maybe he's off going to the bathroom and he doesn't hear you. <laughs> or maybe he's on a journey. There were other writings of that day that said that sometimes the gods, of the, the pagan gods would come and visit and they would go and there was one story of a, of a pagan god being, being off at a game and not being here. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. And when the performance wasn't working, what do they do? They start self-inflicted pain. Because they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, shedding their own blood. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. The sun set off. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This is the reality of serving any God other than Yahweh. Silence. Because there is no other God. And this has been the story for three years. 
The people have been asking for rain, and they've been doing all the sacrifices and all the things, and nothing is happening, and they're stuck in this syncretism, and the society is keep telling them, try harder, do more, do more. They move on, and we get to Elijah. And look at what happens here for Elijah. One is they're performing for attention. It reminds me of like a young child trying to get his father's attention. Look at me, look at me, but maybe the dad is looking at his phone or watching the game, dancing, maybe even acting out. No attention. What's Elijah going to do? How do we get the attention of Yahweh? Look at what happens here. Look at the beauty and the simplicity of this. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Come on, bring it in, bring it in. And to all the people, they came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. There had been an altar of the Lord that Jezebel or the prophets of Baal had probably thrown down. But many years before the the, the gods of Baal, there was this other altar here. The language here for repaired is actually uh, even stronger. It's like he healed the altar. Notice, this is not something that is new. He's calling to the same God of the past. And it says, And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He's reminding them of the same God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's still the same God. He's still the God that has chosen them. He's still the God that brought them out of Israel. I mean, brought them out out of Egypt. Parted the Red Sea. He's still the same God that Joshua put the 12 stones in the Jordan to remind them of his faithfulness and his promise. Reminding them of these promises. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order to cut... So then he, he sets this, and then he says, literally, he tells them to get water and to pour it on top of the altar. And they, 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 they overwhelm the altar with water so much that the trenches on the side fill up, and then he says, do it again. And then he says, do it again. He wants us, as we think about who will answer, he wants us to make sure that, that, that if this is going to light, it must be an act of God. Because Elijah himself, no other human could light this drenched altar. This would need to be a special fire. This would need to be a fire from heaven that can consume not just the sacrifice, but could consume all the water. You see what Elijah is doing? He wants to make it very clear to the reader, especially to these people, to the prophets of Baal, that he believes in this moment God is going to answer. We can feel this. It says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Israel. God of our fathers. The God of the covenant promises to us. Let it be known on this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. In other words, that God is going to And then he says this simple prayer, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Realize as I read this, remember back, remember back with Solomon that says, and they turned their hearts away? Who does the turning of the hearts back? Do the people turn their hearts back? No. Yahweh turns their hearts back. Yahweh turns their hearts back. And notice here, if you've been following along, you could see that Elijah's prayer is to a personal person. He's praying to God, Yahweh, the personal name of God. You could see throughout this story so far that Elijah has this relationship with God and God is providing for him in incredible ways. And so we have this question, who will answer? And we know the answer is this. The Lord is the one who answers by fire. This is the whole point of this narrative. Don't miss this. The Lord is the one who answers by fire, not Baal, not anything that our society says. There is one God who can show up and do this. Look at what happens. It says, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the response. Fell on their face. And as we read this, what are the implications for you and me? As you read this old, ancient, true story, what does this mean here in the 21st century? What are the implications that we can get from this? Who will answer me today? Who will answer you? Commentaries say that in this passage, in this fire coming down from heaven, there's really two implications, and it's evidence and invitation. The evidence is pretty obvious, right? The altar's gone, the fire consumed everything. God made it very clear to the people that he is the one true God. He makes it very clear. But it can be easy to miss the fact that this is not just a a, a call for the people to repent, to turn back to God. There's also this beautiful, gracious invitation in the fire. You see, Israel's answer is in the fire. It's in that fire, and that fire is not just evidence, it's also invitation. If you remember the story of the people of God in Leviticus chapter 9 when they had the tabernacle, 
They build this tabernacle, and the tabernacle is meant to be the place where the very presence of God will, will be with the people, and they build this place, and they, they have these offerings, and look at what happens. It says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Or back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, when King Solomon built the temple, you read about this temple this week, it says that, and fire, it says as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, he was dedicating the temple. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In that moment, it says that the glory was so overwhelming that people couldn't even go near the temple. You see, it wasn't just evidence, it was also invitation. It was also saying that God is going to be with his people. And so when the people see fire from heaven on this altar, it's not just proof, it's also invitation to saying, God still accepts you. God still accepts this sacrifice. And we could read this story, and we could miss what is happening here. We could read this story and we could say, all right, this means that we need to be a people who are calling fire down from heaven in all those evil places. All right? We actually see later on, Elisha does this. Actually, Jesus, when he was with his disciples, they thought this. There's actually a moment when Jesus was with his disciples. This is crazy. He was with his disciples, and they were, they, were, they were rejected in a town. And look at what happens. It says, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And he, and, he, and he looked towards them. And he was thinking through this moment. And in Luke chapter 9, it says, Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, Jesus, our king, turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. How did he rebuke them? See, church. As we read this story, as we go to this mountain, yes, Israel's answer was in the fire. Your answer today, our answer, is in the sacrifice. Your answer is in the sacrifice. If you keep reading on in Luke chapter 11, look at what Jesus said, actually in chapter 12, when he's talking to his disciples, and he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that it was already kindled? He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. You see, the confession of the Christian faith is not that we go up a mountain. It's not that any of us know a way up the mountain. The confession of our faith is that we can't go up the mountain. But the Lord comes down the mountain to us. And he dwells among us and he baptized 
when he was baptized in his death and resurrection, he took on our sacrifice. And then he went up a mountain to die. And he took that on. One of the commentaries, you recognize that this point is not about a mountain, it's about a person. It says, true and vibrant worship is possible because there was another showdown on another hillside. Jesus Christ crushed the enemy, Satan, sin, and death through his cross and resurrection. He was the ultimate prophet, mediator, and victor, showing us once and for all who the real God is. We marvel at Elijah, and we learn through, from his prayer and faith, but we realize that what saves us and sustains us are the power and grace of Jesus, one greater than Elijah. This is a taste of the one to come. And so our, your answer is in the sacrifice. This is what we believe. This is why we constantly say, church, that the whole Bible is a story, one story that leads to Jesus, and we believe that Jesus changes everything. That's not just a cliche, trite statement we make. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to save you and me from ourselves. We are invited into this story. And so the question is, so what? If Jesus changes everything, what does this mean for you and me? I would say this, first, receive the sacrifice. Say yes to Jesus. It can be very easy in the Christian faith to forget that we are invited into a personal and right relationship with the Father through Jesus. It can be very easy to fall into the habit of performance and pain for attention when the Lord is calling you and me into relationship. Calling you and me to receive the sacrifice, the gospel, and let that be the starting point for everything. Ben said, I heard this said this week in a podcast, it said, the best part about following Jesus is Jesus. The best part about following Jesus is Jesus. I've been thinking about this statement all week, personally. Because I can easily fall into Jesus just being an idea. Jesus just being, or the Bible just being a really fun mystery that somehow all works together and points to Jesus, but, but is he personal? Am I praying? Am I, am I growing? Am I interceding? Do I have a relationship? Am I praying like Elijah is praying to his, to Yahweh? This is what the, we're invited into. And we're not invited into all these fancy, crazy Impressive prayers. We're invited into personal prayers. We're invited into honest prayers. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 8. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty praises 
phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. <laughs> do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. I exhort you today, pray, lean in to what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Let his gospel, his forgiveness of your sins be what you live in. But second, receive the sacrifice, also live in the fire. Say no to compromise. Church, this same message back in, in 1 Kings 18 is just as true, if not more true today. Our world, our society, Satan, our very flesh is telling you, you know what? Follow the Lord, but don't go all the way. Step in the bucket. What if it's not right? Maybe you should also do these other things. What would it be like for you and me to completely just submit and fall on our face and say, Lord, I, there's a lot of questions, but I believe that you're the answer and I believe you're the one who answers. I love what one commentator says. He says, you may not be a prophet of Baal, but you may think like one. If only we, then God will. morning as I was thinking about this, my little league career was pretty bad. I just stepped in the bucket all the time, always afraid of getting hit. One time in college, we did a pickup game of baseball. And I don't know why, there was this college pitcher there and we were playing and I, I just remember Bear with me here if this doesn't make any sense. But I remember show, go, going up to hit and coming up there and just completely forgetting about the fact that this guy threw really hard about 80 miles an hour and he could probably end my life. And I just went up there thinking, I'm going to crush this ball. I've been playing some slow pitch softball, so I was building some confidence. <laughs> And everybody was striking out, and I came up there, and I crushed the ball to the fence, opposite way. And I remember thinking, man, I wish that I had just stopped stepping in the bucket. I think today for you and me, some of us, We're here because we're curious. We've been doing the things. We've been, we've been here in church. We've been thinking about this, but, but maybe the Lord today is saying, quit playing both sides. We have a God who will answer by fire. We have a God who has answered by fire. The evidence is all around you. Quit stepping in the bucket and just commit to following him. Commit to living. It's, it's not about you. It's not about being you and following your dreams. It's about belonging to him, your only comfort in life and in death. 
And I get so excited thinking about what will happen in this church, in this place, if we just together say, we're just going to follow the ways of our king. And when we say his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we know we get to have this already not yet encounter of the very power and the fire of God in us. And so when I talk about living in the fire, it's living with this new fire that God has implanted in us called the very spirit of God. And could we today as we sing of our God, as you think about all the things that this world is throwing at you, I believe God is telling you today, serve him and him alone. Amen. Worship him and him alone. Quit stepping in the bucket. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the God you are the only true God, Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, in your sovereign plan, as you look upon us, God, you see a people that you have decided in your benevolence and by your grace to rescue. And God, we are so grateful that you sent your Son down the mountain to get us. We are so grateful that you have promised your very fire within us to fuel us, to comfort us, to heat us. But Lord, your fire is not safe. Lord, your fire is never comfortable. I pray, Lord, that we, as your people, would follow in your way. I pray, God, for anyone here who perhaps has, by your spirit, been called into something, perhaps has wondered if you are God and if you are real. I pray, Lord, right now in this moment that you would answer. I pray, God, right now for the saint who's who's tired, who's been crying out to you. I pray right now, God, in this moment, as your people, that you would answer. I pray as we sing to you, as we look at your cross, light it up. I pray that we would believe that you truly did die on a cross for our sins, took all our shame, took all our evil, took all our darkness, and you have given us righteousness. I pray, God, that we would hear your answer. And I pray that we would fall on our face in response and worship you. So have your way in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit.